Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shri and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Morning, Shiyan. Another day, another week. Good morning. It's 7 a.m. That's pretty awesome. Let's do it. Who's ready to talk about software? Software, software, software. And of course, this week, the report of the month would be January Capital with their report on Southeast Asia. We have digested their 40 over slides, not 332 pages with <laughs> dear friends at Asia Partners, but interesting summary. And you and I have both spent our time reading it, rereading it, and I think let's talk about it. I think before we jump into like specific favorites or insights and debates, what was your general feel for the January Capital report? Um, I think it was a good summarization. I think they did a nice job with the company details. All you venture capital associates out there, if someone has done your job, they've put everything on a landscape, they've arranged the logos nicely. It's, I think it was nice to see a bunch of the players on a single slide. I think it's also great to see some of the history and timeline evolution. So they kind of plotted some of that stuff. And it's nice to see the growth of the specific subsectors that they highlight. I think there's clear inspiration from some of the Asia partners work, I think, particularly on the talent slides. And I think what's most exciting is for us to kind of just discuss the three kind of trends that they highlight and kind of riff a little bit on what we think about those. And I think it coincides nicely. One of their trends is around SaaS, SaaS for the world built out of Southeast Asia, SaaS for the region. And you're going to SASTER today, right? It seems like a good time to talk about all things SaaS. Yeah. And I think for me, I definitely resonate with the fact that I think Asia Partners has pioneered, I think, the talent mafia analysis approach. And I think definitely see that DNA kind of like ripple into, obviously, in our own conversations, but also into the January Capital Report. And I think we'll probably see that replicated a lot more as a thesis point in future reports that VCs will do to the LPs and in their AGMs and in their three reports. One thing I do think about at a high level was that I think General Capital is interesting because they're the sister organization of Venture Capital Insights, right? Which is, I think, this proprietary database of transactions in Southeast Asia. And of course, they're pulling from not only from Crunchbase and PitchBook, but also from the kind of like private market financial announcements, transactions, right? 
And so I think what was interesting in my head was that I felt like overall that deck around some of the numbers, at least around funding rounds and trends, and especially per country breakdowns were higher resolution than most VCs would have done with just Crunchbase or PitchBook. So I would probably say that this, I think, probably will end up being one of the gold standards, I think, for sizing the deal velocity changes quarter by country. I think people are going to trust this a little bit more than I think some of the other approaches to ballpark those numbers. Yeah, I do know that some funds manage their own databases. And so obviously there's some stuff that is private that isn't publicly reported, and they use that for their own internal analysis. But yeah, I think from what is publicly available and really shareable, I think this is a really good place to start. Yeah, and on that note, what would you think was your one key insight or your favorite slide of the lot? My favorite slide? I think probably like, the core focus areas, right? So that what is the slide 17? I think we're talking about the digitization of commerce, financial services, plumbing, and then the rise of SaaS. I think that brings like a nice focus to what they're interested in and also the why. And I think it helps people also better understand how the ecosystem has evolved over the last 10 years and why these are kind of the things that folks are looking at to push to drive that next leg of growth. Yeah, and let's spell them out, right? Uh, I think the three big trends is uh, digitization of commerce. The second one is plumbing of financial services. And the third is the rise of Southeast Asian SaaS. Uh, for those who can't see the deck, feel free to go to www.bravesea.com to download the report. Obviously, go to General Capital directly. And so I thought the point one about digitization of commerce obviously feels is I don't think it's late, but it feels we're definitely in full play for that digitization of commerce. I think we've seen some version of digitization for commerce since Tokopedia, right? And it feels like at least five years in the running right now. Yeah, um, I think there's another slide on this, which kind of digs into it deeper, which is like the first leg of digitization is the marketplace leg. Right, which is like, hey, get all the sellers into one place and get all the buyers into one place and they can see stuff they couldn't see before. There's price comparison, there's some logistics embedded, there's payment rails. And then the next leg is really about how those individual stores break out of the marketplace and start to establish their own sort of brand.com, going from Amazon to Shopify, right? And have their own direct relationship from customers that are not mediated by the marketplace. And so I think... That is kind of an interesting question for me because I don't know whether people are ready to take on the work of running all of their own infrastructure. People wanting to sell more verticalized commerce solutions, whether it's the analytics part, it's price optimization, it's loyalty and discount. You kind of get those for free when you're on a marketplace. You don't have to think about it. I mean, you have to play by their rules, but at some point, people sort of like, hey, I'm doing 10 million of GMB or whatever. I don't want to deal with Shopee or Lazada. I want to start building direct relationships, increase my margins. But then they need a whole other set of competencies and teammates, basically, who can handle some of these other SaaS tools. So I, I think I'm curious to kind of see how that plays out. It is crowded. There's a lot of people saying we are going to help store sell more effectively online but go to market is hard and margins are not great right on the stores already and so that makes them even less willing to spend money on software 
Yeah. And I think that's the tricky part, right? Is that on one end, you have these marketplaces that have pretty much, I think to some extent, won the direct-to-consumer visibility, right? The brand, the stickiness in terms of language. And so I think a lot of folks are like, okay, we're going to be the e-commerce enablers, right? And the tricky part is they think they're the counterpart to the marketplace, but the answer is they're not they're actually middleware to some extent, right? Because the brand is on the real other side of the marketplace. And so I think when you're middleware, I think a lot of folks are like, okay, we are in contrast to the marketplace, but we're like, no, it's really like you are a service provider to the brand and the brand has the negotiating power because it can always walk away from you, right? And so I think there's this interesting dynamic, obviously, between two approaches to that, right? Two successful approaches to it. I think one, of course, is middleware or folks who become effectively brands, right? So they start having private label brands or they acquire brands in order to maintain the margin, right, for themselves. And so they don't get not squeezed by the marketplaces or the brand. Well, the second one is you're somewhere in between, but you're actually providing some serious value that nobody's ever, ever going to try to really replicate. And so a big one, for example, would be logistics, right? Logistics would be like nobody wants to replicate the whole stack of same day or next day delivery. So sure, the brand is not going to do that. But I think for everybody else, oh, I'm trying to help them get better at digital marketing. I'm using an example as a middleware. I think there's a real tough value proposition that's not, it's not that it's not defensible. But I think it's something that a brand is going to be naturally incentivized to improve on their own. And that's going to be this interesting squeeze, I think, of the take rate or the SaaS or the margin that's available I mean, there. I think there's a bifurcation, right? So it's basically like the big guys will always try to do it themselves. And the little guys might be too cheap to pay. So you're in the middle, right? You know it's going to help you. It's kind of like open source, right? Like on the low end, people will use the open source tools for free. On the high end, they won't. And in the middle, that's when they're willing to pay for like the premium service on top of the open source offering. So that's kind of like where your customers end up sitting. I think it's an interesting point, right? Which is like, I think you can build businesses here. It's just you need to not overcapitalize them. And you need to really understand your segment well. Yeah. I think now we're kind of going to the second point that they raised here, right? Which is about plumbing of financial services. So somewhat like a SaaS. But obviously, there's some commerce dynamics because I think one of the biggest drivers of cost is that for e-commerce, you need digital finance, right? And lending and all these other things. So I think there's a bit of a parallel synergy between this development of these two sectors. But I think it's an interesting way to talking about the plumbing of embedded fintech with a distribution-first approach. They talk about emerging verticalized solutions for B2B slash B2B to C use cases. What do you think about that? I mean, I, I like embedded fintech a lot, right? Because you already have the distribution and it's just turning on the finance portion. I think on the lending things, it gets a little trickier. There's licensing considerations. There's balance sheet, off balance sheet risk. And maybe when you were starting a payroll software company, that's not what you were thinking about. <laughs> and so I think companies have to navigate, you know, build or buy there. And I think you'll see the emergence of people who will offer up platform solutions, right? And say, hey, we have the license, we have the underwriting expertise, you have the customers. Why don't we collaborate rather than you try to build all this stuff yourself? And so I think that can be really interesting, right? So it's sort of like if you think how many people are going to build Stripe Capital or Shopify Capital versus the US equivalent is a company called Jarvis, where they basically say, hey, you have the customers, why don't we just plug in all the other stuff? from the sort of underwriting criteria to the access to capital. 
and you can run you know, a really profitable ancillary business on top of your core software business. And so I think that's going to be pretty, pretty interesting to see these guys emerge. I mean, I think the thing about embedded fintech is that exactly like you said, is that if you already have a very strong, sticky relationship to customer and the customer is moving and buying your services regularly, whether you're a marketplace or I guess middleware, I guess, there's a lot of opportunity to add on that monetization layer of embedded fintech, right? So lending to obviously both increases top line, but also helps increase the velocity of everything. So I think that's really interesting. That being said, I think there's a bit of a debate always, right? Which is if you start out today and you're like, okay, do I want to go embedded fintech or do I build a core service? Then I think everyone's like, well, do you really have to build a giant marketplace in order to get to embedded fintech? Like, why don't you just go straight to the lending part directly without that? transactions. I think there's a big, I think dynamic. But do you think people are actually yeah. consciously making that choice? Or I've seen a lot. Is it that they are, they started out down the marketplace route and then they were like, oh shit, margins suck. I need to add something. And then they're like, oh, I know I'm adding lending. I mean, I think that's kind of how people end up there more. Because if you were going to build embedded fintech from the beginning, like the rails and everything, the business will look really different than building like a marketplace or a software business? hundred uh, percent. One is definitely lots of marketplaces with low margins that are doing embedded finance to increase their margins. And I think the big question mark, of course, is what percentage would do a take rate and can they do that lending well? And I think it's a good approach. That being said, I think there's a lot of new startups I've seen that are literally like saying, I think they read Anderson Horowitz's FinTech, like what's your entry wedge? And then they'll have the embedded FinTech, right? And I think, you read this thing and you, you take this very macro report, right? Which is true at the seven-year mark or eight-year mark. But then you're like, okay, I'm going to build this giant business in order to do financing for a very small fraction of customers. And then I'm like, I think the conversation I always have is just like, okay, is there a way for us to skip to the profitable part first? Because it sounds like you're going to burn a lot of capital in order to get there, which is sometimes works, sometimes doesn't work, but it's always, I think, a useful thought experiment to at least pressure test that hypothesis. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's also a function of what capital markets will bear, right? I think if you said this like three years ago, there are a lot of kata book copies being financed with that playbook. And I just got back from a trip to Kenya and Nigeria. And what was interesting was that there are many similar models as well, right? So people tried to take those playbooks and roll them out at different African markets because they also have the same problem, right? All these like small warongs or corner stores and things that do everything in pen and paper can we digitize it okay and what's the incentive it's like okay at some point we're gonna lend the money control their payment flow sit in the middle of all that but i think what's different is that in the african market there's less money and so a lot of these founders actually were forced to find more profitable or less high burn go-to-markets sooner so you don't see as many as what you see in India or Southeast Asia. I think one underrated risk, of course, is that if everybody is doing embedded finance, then, you know, it's quite old that many whales that borrowing a lot from you end up also being whales borrowing from other finance, embedded finance. And so I think, I don't think we're really there yet in emerging markets yet because it's not enough capital in general. But if it's a closed loop, you yeah. can take the collections first. Yeah. So if assuming, you have the embedded finance. Yeah. Correct. And so if assuming you have they run through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I think the scary part, I think I've seen a lot of folks is like they're doing this lending without a very clear 
lock on this flow, right? For whatever set of reasons. And so they're saying like, oh, we're going to do a bunch of analysis and modeling of the uncorrelated risk. And I was just literally just sharing with a founder recently. I was just like, yeah, there's uncorrelated risk in every market until it's a recession. And one thing I noticed on a Bray podcast is like so many folks, entrepreneurs, they actually have distinct childhood memories of their parents going through the Asian financial crisis and just losing control, right, of their small, medium enterprise. And I was just like, yeah, the thing is, if you don't have a lock, like you said, on the revenues, the flow, or you don't have a lock on the asset, right, because you have a covenant, then it's very easy to lend money out. <laughs> but the tricky part, actually, and it's also not too bad to get some repayments in, but the tricky part is to get both, right, and get the repayments and the principal back equivalent. Yeah. I think that's the magic trick, right? I always tell people lending is not a product market fit problem. It's a risk management problem. And so... People get very happy when their loan book grows and it's like, no, that's not actually the thing you're supposed to be happy about. So yeah, I totally agree. Especially when they report total revenues as the repayments and then you're like, that's not how a bank works. We got to look at the net interest margin and fancy, fancy terms. Yeah. It's true. It's true. But you also get an appreciation of like how important credit is in an economy and how limiting things can be when there's no ability to time shift. So it is all essential plumbing, but yeah. There's going to be a lot of blowing up along the way. I think some ways that embedded finance is trying to de-risk that, of course, and then they start saying like, okay, we're going to do a SaaS as well, which is the third approach that they have. And I know I kind of like, because digitization commerce is that, that's so like three years ago. <laughs> but I would say SaaS, I give it to them. I think that's probably one of the first written reports, I would say. I think I've definitely seen that in private conversations over the past one year about maybe SaaS findings in play. But I think they're the first to really kind of say that upfront in the report with approach. And I think this kind of goes back, I think the core thesis from my perspective, and I think uh, Peng at Monks Hill had a great point of view, which was like, it's really about the GDP per capita, right? At some level, fundamentally, there's a cost of labor to do this internally as a company. And then once cost of labor rises beyond a certain point, then in general, the incentives are much stronger for you to adopt digital tools to either increase efficiency, but effectively reduce the cost of headcount. And obviously, What's interesting is that Southeast Asia GDP per capita, obviously, is growth has been slow and steady and good, actually, in the current macro environment. But I think if you actually break it out into the certain metropolitan areas, I think that GDP per capita growth has been much faster and has definitely exceeded, I think, those that B2B SaaS inflection point, right, for many areas. And I think that's really driving, I think, the underlying adoption of SaaS by local Southeast Asia companies. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's a generational transition. I mean, so, you know, we have a couple of companies in the portfolio that sell SMB SaaS. And if you ask them who their best customers are, there's sort of two axes, right? One is they manage more than one store. So it's complexity, right? So it's not even about the labor, it's the complexity. And then two is they're like under 35. Because you grew up with the internet, you grew up with software, it doesn't scare you. And so even if it is like, you don't break even on the software in the first month, you can visualize basically how this is going to make things easier for you to grow top line in the future. And so, yeah, I think it's both the GDP, but also it's generational mindset and people being willing to ad adopt software to make their lives easier. Yeah. And I think that reminds me as well as I think there's much more appreciation of SaaS, right? So I think founders understand what SaaS is and 
I think there's obviously a lot of great SaaS information knowledge. For example, Sester, right, by Jason Lemkin. They came to APAC and they're having this giant party this week with all the SaaS founders from APAC flying in. It was a big, big party. A lot of folks here for the first time in Singapore, but also lots of Southeast Asia founders actually building SaaS and really excited to feel like it's their moment, right? But so I think there's a lot of knowledge sharing. I think that's really happening about how to build SaaS properly. And also, I think there's more venture capital, I think, also starting to sniff around for SaaS because I think I remember about two years ago, I think there was a big mood. I'll say like only 50% of a third of the VCs were interested in SaaS and two thirds were like, ah, oh, SaaS is too early, I would say about two years ago. And so, whereas now I think I go into the room, it's pretty much everyone's interested in SaaS, especially with the bear market today, I guess. So... Well, and everyone's it's interested in recurring revenue. That's what you're saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Annual recurring revenue, not annual revenue. That's the joke that they have. And so I, I think that's a big driver as well. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that. And I mean, I think for Southeast Asia on the SaaS front, like what do you see, right? Which is, I think the Indian entrepreneurs actually have been the pioneers here, which is they say, hey, all the Western SaaS, the pricing doesn't work for us. And we don't actually need all those features. We're going to come in from the bottom, right? And price really competitively, but also with a more limited set of features that works for our markets and kind of grow bottoms up. And there have been multiple examples of that on the Indian continent. And then those businesses have gone global. And then I think the other one is like a lot of the sort of Western software types of offerings also don't really handle cross-border that well. And so separate from pricing, separate from reducing the feature set is also putting in features that this region needs more of, or handling cash and local payments and things like that. And so I am excited to see more of these global software businesses emerge out of our part of the world because more of the world looks like us than like the U.S. market. And so that, that'll be cool to track. Yeah, and I think that's on my side, my favorite slide of that report, which was breaking out SaaS into two categories, right? Which is SaaS that's built for Southeast Asia, and the second one is SaaS built for the world, right, from day one. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation. And I, I liked it because I've been thinking about that a lot and I've been saying that in private. And it's nice for them to spell it out more explicitly. That being said, I actually have a recommendation for them. And then I can take this for free for the next report, I guess. But I think like exactly kind of like pulling what you said, Shuyen, is like, I think there are folks that are building for their country, if that makes sense, or their MSME, which is very much more, I can say, Southeast Asia oriented. I think there are folks that are building for Western countries, right? So high GDP per capita countries like the West, like Europe for customers in the US, right? With honestly, obviously high interest in SaaS, high adoption of SaaS, but also high ticket prices for SaaS, right? And so that's a very different approach. And then I think the third, like you said, is building for, you could say, other emerging markets that are maybe one bound less rich, I would say, Southeast Asia or a different approach. So I would say maybe there's three categories. Obviously, there's some overlap. I'm sure other management consultants be like, Jeremy, that's not like mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. So I'll put it in a nice little Venn diagram, maybe just to kind of like dodge that bullet on that slide. I think we got to bifurcate the world slide into, like you said, right? Building for high GDP per capita. Yep. Or is it building for low GDP per capita, right? And that's it. Yep. Makes a ton of sense. And on that note, have you seen uh, some changes of SaaS trends in Southeast Asia? I know you had a point of view on marketplaces versus SaaS, right? So I wanted to hear your point of view on that. 
trends. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is people are trying. <laughs> I think three, five years ago, people were not really trying to build SaaS that much. And I think a little bit is that we don't have a history of it. So if you were a SaaS founder, where would you have done it before? But now I think with the pandemic, more people coming home from SaaS companies that they had been part of or built in other markets and more people just coming through and saying, hey, I see an opportunity here. I do think people are starting to build more of it, which is great. But I think it is still very much who you're going to sell to. You're going to sell to other startups because they're more open to the idea of buying SaaS. Um, or you're going to go sell to like SMEs, but you need to make it so drop dead easy that they don't have to do anything. I think it's still really hard to sell to corporates here that people are not as open to trying startup software, despite the government's best efforts to do like sandboxes or collaborations. I just think it isn't in the DNA of a corporate to be like, yeah, let's try this half-baked software that someone else made. Like, it's not their incentive set. And so I think the funny thing is that like more startups begets more SaaS because there's just more people initially to sell to and try. And that's like a big part of getting this off the ground. And we need more companies in the middle. Right. You kind of need the 50 to 100 million revenue companies. And we don't have a ton of those. We have a ton of companies that are like sub 10 million in revenue. And then we have a few like big unicorns and exits. Right. But that middle high growth range, that's where they're going to have these software needs where it's like, hey, I'm not going to buy Oracle or NetSuite, <laughs> right? And my business is going really quickly. I'm willing to take a risk and I'm willing to try something that's going to solve my problem. You need that middle to emerge to, I think, really drive. Otherwise, you're always stuck in this very grassroots bottoms up model, which is, okay, what can I sell to an MSME for like under 50 bucks a month? Yeah, and I think that's fair, which is the SaaS that you're building is really determined by what the annual price point of your product is, right? Are you at $100 per year? Are you at $1,000 per year? Are you $10,000 per year? Are you $100,000 per year? Are you a million dollars per year? And those are actually very different types of companies and very different repetitions. And I think the SaaS has done a really great job, actually, really kind of explaining why those are different, especially in terms of like your marketing mix, your sales mix, are you inbound, are you outbound? And what are the unit economics that are possible in terms of customer acquisition costs, depending on the value of that end customer? So I think they've done a tremendous job. And shout out to Sester for bringing the party to Southeast Asia. Are they uh, a sponsor, Jeremy? Market. What's going uh, on not here? Not yet, but uh, Sester, you hear me? I'm all in on that sweet Sester APAC promo <laughs> code. Hit me up for next year, baby. Shout out to Black Mangroves with Arnold Bonzom for actually securing probably the first promo code in Southeast Asia for Sasta APAC. I saw a lot of folks. Probably the best performing promo code. I think, Good job, Arno. We got to get to Good Ar job. We love gotta, you. Got to get Arno on the podcast. I know. He's been rescheduling me too popular with his travel and all his speaking engagements. Next time. Next time. I, I think the good news is I do feel like there are some startups that are slowly cracking it. I think a shout out to Evren doing cybersecurity. I think they're slowly selling to chief information security officers and CTOs because they were and used to be CISOs, right? And that's a really hard specialized expertise to sell, but they've been doing it and they've been successful doing it. And they're slowly building up the logos. And SaaS is a long-term player, right? It's like it takes you four years to get all your logos in the lined up like ducks in a row. 
And then it kind of picks up after that, right? Because then people are like, okay, you're not a fly by night SaaS. You're not going to go belly up tomorrow. It's okay to buy, right? I think if you're building a SaaS, you just got to be patient, right? And I think- Yeah, I mean, I that's, think we tell everyone, you got to have a plan to get to a million in revenue because everything kind of looks the same before that. But if you hit a million, then you're like, okay, maybe something's working and people will take you more seriously. But it's going to be a lean road to get to a million because not a lot of people want to fund that path. Shout out to Hustle Fund, willing to fund folks to get to that $1 million mark. Yeah. Yes. Send me all your SaaS deals, guys. I want to <laughs> see them. I want to see them. Reach out to Shuyen. There we go. And I think that's the interesting, I think, transition point, like you said, right? I think, like said, I think million dollars is a very good transition point. Now, I was talking to our SaaS founder a few days ago, but I think transition points really is obviously your first $1 is obviously life-changing. And then the next one is, I think I would say roughly about the $10,000 mark. That's like, okay, you started getting the reps. Then 100,000 is like, why am I doing my life? It's so hard. I have a, everything's breaking. I'm still like, I still haven't finished building all the features that my SaaS customers want. And I'm still trying to sell. And that's, I think 100 grand is like one of the hardest points, I think, because it's really hard. I think millions when things really start to click and feel yeah. real nice. Yeah, I mean, well. I think the other thing that I would say is retention. Right. It's great to get the first dollar and the first 10,000, but retention is the thing that's going to make things easier. And so if your churn is really high out of the gate. Spend time fixing that because otherwise you're just pouring water in a leaky bucket and that is really demoralizing. And so I think sometimes people get so caught up in the sale that they kind of forget about the customer success retention part. And it's still early days when you're really trying to understand, okay, like when is my customer being like, okay, I get the value. It's working, it's clicking versus like, I'm very confused. I've installed and I don't know what's happening here. So I, I think that's a thing that sometimes people neglect. And then you're in this horrible situation where you're bailing water on retention and like sales is going down. Yeah, I mean, Reforge actually does a really good job teaching that Brian Belfort, right? And I remember he taught a class, so I was there and he was just talking about how like, if you don't fix that revenue retention, by cohort especially, then what happens is that you have a shark's fin, right? Like each cohort, it looks like they're growing because the initial customers buy more, but then you're dropping off and you have a shark's fin, right? And then you're stacking multiple cohorts of shark fins and it becomes a giant shark's fin. And then you kind of like scratch your head because you're like, oh my God, you hit your hundred grand, but then, you know, more people are exiting at the same rate as you're building. And then I think that's the make or break moment for a lot of SaaS founders, right? Because either they run off cash because they thought they were going to hit a million real easy because they assumed the retention was okay versus those who kind of like are able to then start hammering the team to be like, okay, we got to ship the features or the UX improvements that our existing customers really want versus let's stop building features that the new customers want. And I think that's a huge debate. I think that happens at every SaaS team all the time because revenue retention is a very non-sexy part of our SaaS. I think that's the, no, man. the building... No, retention is super sexy. Do not listen to Jeremy's blasphemy. Retention is the sexiest thing. Net revenue retention, okay? That should be everyone's favorite thing. Like okay, you should. That's the thing that works when you are asleep is retention, okay? Okay, net revenue retention is sexy. <laughs> okay, yeah. right. I would say that's something that I think a lot of SaaS founders really don't somehow portray properly in the decks. I've seen founders who do a good job on net revenue retention and they totally don't talk about it in their decks and so it's very much me looking at the numbers and then I have to do all the math <laughs> for myself to be like okay the reason why it's happening is because they're really good at net revenue retention rather than at sales right 
And then that makes me very interested. And I'm also very happy, right? Because that means no other VC did the math probably. <laughs> so there's opportunity for me to help out and talk to the founder and we can say, get the deal, right? And partner up about how to do that for the future. I think there's something I would love for more SaaS founders to do is, yeah, show their retention by cohorts, net revenue retention by cohorts, break it out by attrition versus cross-selling. And those would be three beautiful slides <laughs> that would be awesome to see more of. Cohort charts. I definitely want to see more cohort charts in Dex. Is that a SaaS tool for cohort? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Report. For sure. But you, you, yeah. should, you should want to know that anyway. Like it shouldn't be yeah. something that investors have to ask for. Like you, the founder, should want to see that thing. And I, you know, I give an example. You know, I was working with a startup and they were using the cohort metric report from Stripe. Thank you, Stripe. Shout out to Stripe, another potential sponsor. For obviously their cohort tool on retention. And, you know, he was just kind of using it as their, the thing. And basically, what I came down to was like monthly attrition was like 7%, right? Oh. And then, which is high, obviously, very high. Yeah. And then the conversation then became like, so what's going on here? And it's like, yeah, because for our product, people like to like use it and then they pause it and then they resume it, right? Down the road. And Stripe counts it as two or three cancellations, right? <laughs> During that time period. And they're like, that's, just, that's okay. And I'm like, what? That's not okay. That means your attrition is way lower. Your lifetime value is way better than what you're putting on this slide. And I think I was like so angry at like three different Zoom calls and just hammering this until he finally like gave in. Obviously, he kind of knew that was important. So he just did it as well. But because it's really important, right? Really key to know. It's like your speedometer being wrong, right? And it just turns out like, hey, Jeremy, turns out our, our attrition rate is like 1%. And I was like, is that good? I'm like, yeah, that's like seven times better, right? <laughs> I don't know. That's, I think that's my value add, right? Is being a naggy person about what are the best metrics to have, right? Uh, on that note, any advice you would give to founders? I think that's mine. Mine was understand your core retention and attrition real well. How about you? Any last words of wisdom? I think it's related to what I said earlier, right? Which is like retention comes when you really understand your customer's journey through your product and where they're getting value. And it may not be what you originally thought. So they might have bought because of a reason, but they might retain for a different reason. And so I think spending time to really understand that full customer journey loop and like where in that month that they're paying you, are they getting value? How do you know? Right? Because then, you know, you can orient your product roadmap more towards that. You can line up your customer success to focus on getting people to that point where they feel that value. And all those things will stack up into retention. So, yeah, I, I think it's really spend the time early on with customers. I think sometimes people get, like I said, really caught up in sales and then they don't spend the time on the back end. And that's actually super valuable learning. Love to double click on that real quick, which is how do folks focus on that back end, right? Because it's not, like I said, not hot, unfortunately. It will be hot thanks to you. But I, I think how Just, does that It's simple. Happen? Call them. Like, hey, Jeremy, I saw you've been using my product for like, in the first 30 days, I'm the founder. I would love to get some feedback. Like you can just respond to this email, like what's going well, what pisses you off, or I'm happy to jump on a call, whatever's easiest. And just try to get as much feedback as possible. And then also understand who your best and who your worst customers are, right? So if someone churned like right away, you need to know why. If someone is like three standard deviations, highest engaged user, like, oh man, they log in on the product like every day and they're doing something, you also need to understand why. Because, you know, your best user, maybe there's some use case you didn't think of or there's some value you didn't realize. And then you can go focus on that kind of customer, finding more people like that. And then the guy who just like churned right away, it's like, 
there might be something really stupid in the flow that you didn't realize was stupid. And it's like an easy fix, right? You just have to ask. And sometimes you can't tell from the data, right? You need to actually talk to a human who used your product to understand like what's actually going on as they're using it. The data helps, right? Obviously, you should have all the standard analytics and instrumentation set up. But I think it's really hard to beat some of the qualitative stuff early on because you just have no idea. You're still figuring out how people are using your stuff. Yeah, definitely. 100% agree. And I think uh, last night I was very frustrated with well-known uh, startup. Very, very frustrated with the UX. But thankfully, a former employee jumped in with the GM to basically hear my side of the story. And then it prevented like a tweet storm from me about UX problems. <laughs> I was like, okay, I promise not to like do a tweet storm about the UX here. So anyway. Yeah, but, but most people is, won't tweet about it. They'll just churn. Yeah. So you won't just churn, yeah. But I thought it was funny, just the UX, because it's like comedy of errors, right? But it was okay. It was my fault at some level, but it was just like the UX is basically... User error. <laughs> hey, you, now you're like, it's all me. I want to say that my user error was called being late, changing my credit card, okay? So that was my one error, okay? So it was not... That was my error. Okay, on that note, thank you so much. And oh, wait, Shayan, I think you want to do a shout out to Projal, right? For his feedback. Oh, well, I guess we're starting to get people right in. And uh, Projal was sad that I mentioned Onloop, but did not say his name. Projal, I'm listening. Projal is great. He's a SaaS founder using AI in Southeast Asia and helping people capture feedback, achieve company goals, and auto-magically write reviews, which for anyone who's been through a review cycle knows is incredibly painful. And so imagine if you could do that automatically. Check out Onloop. Automagically, my favorite phrase as well. And also, you can check out Bro Jow's episode as well. He did a prior, like, a one-on-one personal interview on bravesea.com and check out his profile. On that note, thank you so much. All right. See take all. it easy. Bye. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.